topic on my mind is your heavenly husband. Okay. Your heavenly husband. And for the men out there, these sermons are a little weird, right? They're a little strange to be thinking about a heavenly husband. But folks, the church is Christ's bride. Okay? That's what Scripture teaches. That we are the bride of Christ. That's the, the image that he uses to explain the close and deep and intimate relationship he has, has with us. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, given the admonitions of husbands, says, Husbands, love your wives. How? Even as Christ also loved the church. How did he do that? And gave himself for it. Why? that he might sanctify and cleanse it, make it holy and pure, with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives. It goes on with, practical applications of that, but the lesson in there is that he's teaching us how to love our wives by demonstrating how Christ loves his bride. He gave himself for it to cleanse us because we are vile sinners. Not worthy of his love, but he loved us anyway, and he did what was necessary, the only thing that could be done to make us clean and pure and to sanctify us, to make us holy, which was to give himself. And so that now... We can stand in his righteousness. This uh, concept is expressed again over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is expressing to the church, he said, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Christ through his subtlety—excuse me, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety—so that your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So he is expressing again this concept of the bride being espoused or engaged or married to the husband Christ, and here he's worried about you having a pure doctrine and having Christ at the head of it, and not being defiled. And I'm not worried so much about that aspect of it. It's just the concept. That we as a church have a heavenly husband. Okay? And if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you know, men, if, you, if, that, if that just concept is just too hard to wrap your head around, think it in terms of submission. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So within your marriages, sisters, the head of your marriage is the man. That's the way he set it up. Men, you are not an autonomous, independent creature in charge of your own destiny. No, you're subject to someone. You're subject to your head, Christ. That's who I wanted to look at this morning, right? Who is our head? Who is our our heavenly husband? Now, if you were to ask a little girl, Right? Let's say she's at a cute age where they're willing to talk to you, four, five, six, and you ask them, 
what do you want in a husband? Right? What's the first thing she's probably going to say? I want a prince. Right? That's what all the Disney stories, I want a prince. And he should be handsome and rich and strong and kind and loving and smart. Right? That's a pretty good list. Right? Y'all ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? There's a funny song in there about the matchmaker. And the daughters are starting off, listing off what they want. Maybe he'll be rich. Someone important. Right? For mama, make him rich as a king. For daddy, make him a scholar. But for me, I wouldn't complain if he was as handsome as anything. Right? And we kind of chuckle about that. But brothers and sisters, you have a heavenly husband who is all that and more. Your heavenly husband is rich. Go back to Psalms. Glad that Brother Abraham started us in Psalms. We're going to look a little bit there. Your heavenly husband is rich. Psalm 50. Let's just read verse 10 through 12. For every beast of the forest is mine. God speaking here. Every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains. Jesus talking about the sparrows. He's not going to miss one. He's not going to fall without him noticing. He knows them all. The wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, in the context here is talking about sacrifices, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> For the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Your heavenly husband is rich. Go back to Psalm 24. This was in your reading this week, so it should look familiar. Psalm 24 and verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world is and they that dwell therein. The whole thing is His. Everything that's produced in there is His. Everyone on it is His. Go to the New Testament to look at Colossians to specifically apply this to Christ, to Jesus, to our Lord. Colossians chapter 1. Start in verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet, or fit, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. You've been delivered from the power of darkness. That's the bondage to sin. And hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. That is the heavenly kingdom where you sit today. He's raised us up to sit in heavenly places in Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we are today. We're sitting in the kingdom of His Son. In whom we have redemption through his blood. He bought us, paid for us. And the result of that, we have the forgiveness of sins. Who is the image of the invisible God? We're talking about Christ here. He is the image. You can see the image of the visible, invisible God. Excuse me. The invisible God. The firstborn of every creature. For by him, Jesus, were all things created. All things. All things that are in heaven. All things that are in earth, all things that are visible, all things that are invisible, all things, whether they be thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. 
They're his. You have a heavenly husband who's rich. There's no one who can top that. But not only is he rich, it'd be one thing, okay, I've got a rich husband, but he's a jerk, right? He's terrible to me. That is not the case here. He is kind and he is loving. Go to Matthew chapter 11. He gives a gentle, gentle invitation to his children. Matthew chapter 11 at the end. Well, starting 27 says, All things are delivered unto me of my Father. Right? Which things? All things. And no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Verse 28. Come. Come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Listen to the gentleness and the kindness. Come unto me, all that ye labor or heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The image that comes to my mind here is as we're moving through this life, it's like we're attached to a heavy sled. Just weighted down with all of our sins. Burdens, I don't imagine a big boulders, rock pile, whatever you want to see in your imagination, and you're trying to drag this through the muck. Ever tried to move something really heavy, and you can kind of get it, but it's just like an inch at a time, and you feel things straining and popping, and know that the next day it's not going to go well? That's kind of our whole life when we're trying to do it on our own, when we're trying to carry the burden of our sin. And you know what? As we're going along, we're picking up more sin and we're tossing it on there. Right? You're laboring and you're heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. The image that I get of this is not Jesus handing me the yoke. It doesn't say Jesus on it. But like when you're drawing with two animals, whether it's two oxen or two donkeys, you're getting in the yoke with him. Guess who's the stronger of the two? Guess who's really doing the work? Him. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. Have an understanding of me. For I am meek. It's gentle. That's humble. And lowly in heart. Now, how opposite of this is of those who want you to find enlightenment in the world. You've got to climb that spiritual mountain. Talk to the guru on the top. And once you've done all that journey, then maybe you'll learn something. I'm here. Right where you are. Down in the muck and the mud. Lowly where you can come to me right now. This is the gentleness and the kindness of your heavenly husband. To take that burden... To learn of him, I'm meek and lowly, and you should find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. You know what that easy translates to over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is that section on love? Love is kind. Easy. Same word. Useful. Employed. Better. My yoke is better. My yoke is easy. My yoke is kind. My burden 
is light. You can lay down your burdens of sin in this world, step into the yoke with your heavenly husband and walk with him. He's bearing the load. In fact, he's already borne it all. What you're carrying is really just your imagination, right? He can give you that clear conscience for his sake and by his work. You have a heavenly husband who's not only rich, he's kind, he's gentle. Well, let's see. He's a protector, right? Little girls, you want to be protected. You don't want someone to hurt you or harm you. Okay, you've got um, all the riches and you've got a nice husband, but he can't protect you. Someone can come in and hurt you and take it all away. That's not what's depicted in the 23rd Psalm, is it? Y'all read that this week? The Lord is my shepherd. What's the purpose of the shepherd? To care and provide and make sure the sheep are protected, that they have everything they need. I shall not want, I shall not be lacking. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He knows where I need to be. He provides what I need to be. He makes sure I lay down there to stay put, to be nourished, to have that rest. He leadeth me beside the still waters, the ones that he knows that I need and that I can handle. He restores my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. When you're yoked to him, he's directing. He's leading you in the paths of righteousness. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of of death. That sounds like a pretty scary thing. If I saw that on a sign, say, enter here, valley of the shadow of death, I'd probably be looking for an alternative route. But I don't have to fear. He's with me. I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. He is a capable protector. There's no evil that's strong enough to overthrow him or even upset him or deter him. Sometimes daddies, when we're in a bad situation and we're trying to protect our family, we kind of put on a brave front and we're going to get through it as best I can, but some of us, we're just faking it. We're trying to put on a strong... Jesus doesn't have to fake it. There is nothing that can ruffle his feathers that's too hard for him. I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Now those rod and staff... When it's against the enemy, it's hard as iron. You break them. I also use those against me to get my furry little sheep tail back where it needs to be when he's chasing me as a son. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. That's bold. You think about that. No, we don't want to eat here, family. It's not safe. You have a provider and a protector who can spread a table wherever. And no one's going to overthrow it. And it's not just a little meager affair. Here, have some trail mix. We're going to get on the road. We've got to get going. No. You're preparing it so that you're anointing my head with oil. Very formal. My cup's running over. I've got a super abundance because of how great this heavenly husband is. As a provider and a protector. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You know what goodness and mercy are? Descriptions of God himself. He's the one leading and following and protecting you. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay? You have a heavenly husband who is rich, kind, gentle, and yet able to protect you, 
to provide for you. And this one, brothers, will probably be hard for you, but he's also handsome. He's desirable. The Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Right after Ecclesiastes, if your fingers are fumbling like mine. There's a conversation going on between the fairest among women, this is the church, and the daughters of Jerusalem. Fairest among women has lost her beloved. He came, she didn't get out of bed fast enough, he's withdrawn himself, and so now she's looking for him. Okay? And she says, I charge thee, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell ye him that I am sick of love. Heart sick, not sick of love. And then the question comes, what is thy beloved more than another beloved? What makes your heavenly husband so great more than anyone else? O thou fairest among women, what is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? All right, and the next verses are going to be a beautiful description of this fairest among women, the church's love for her heavenly husband. It says, My beloved is white and ruddy. All right, she's going to be describing his physical appearance here, but this, this white means dazzling, bright, illuminating. Ruddy means his, his rosy, flushed face. The chiefest among 10,000. How good is your heavenly husband? He's better than them all. The chiefest. His head is of most fine gold. That most fine gold are two different things. They both mean pure and ore. There's no impurity in him. Not a bit. His locks or his hair are bushy and black as a raven. Jet black. His eyes are as the eyes of a dove by rivers of waters washed in milk and fitly self set. What exactly that imagery looks like, I don't know. Sounds pretty. But I mean, y'all ever written some dumb love notes as a kid? And you're trying to express how you feel and how great that other person is? Right? That's what's going on here. We, not, we may not be able to actually envision what the eyes of a dove that's been washed in milk and waterfalls and they're all put just right, but the point is it's beautiful. Your heavenly husband is beautiful. He, has a, he is an object to be desired okay his cheeks are a bed of spices as sweet flowers or towers of perfumes you see this, this the cheeks are just piled up like and they smell good right his lips are like lilies dropping sweet smelling myrrh even his breath smells good there's no flaw here his hands are as gold rings or gold turning set with beryl it's like gems his belly is as bright ivory, uh, and that bright means uh, like sleek, ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble, and those pillars are like columns. I mean, think of the strength here that's being described. This is all figurative imagery, and maybe, man, it's too hard for you to, to wrap your head around it. But you have a wonderful, desirable friend. That's who we're submitting to. That's who we loving. His legs are pillars of marble set in sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His countenance is as Lebanon. Okay. 
We don't hang out in Lebanon, but if you read through the Bible, Lebanon is where the good stuff came from. It was a rich land. That was where the cedars were tall and straight. That's what they built the temple out of. You know, he, the best. It's trying to take all the best things that we've got in our life, and maybe these don't resonate in our culture, but it's still taking the best and applying it to Christ. What is Christ? He's the best. You think of the best way you can describe the best, and he's better. All right? We're just getting glimpses of it. His mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, the object of my affection and desire. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So you have a heavenly husband. He's rich. He's kind and gentle and yet strong and a protector. He's handsome. He's desirable. Well, if you had all that and he's dumb as a rock, would you be pleased? No. He's smart. He has wisdom, right? And just briefly, you remember he um, brought up Bathsheba. This is Matthew 12 and 42. The queen of the south, queen of Sheba, not Bathsheba, different. Queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Solomon was blessed to be the wisest man who'd ever lived. Christ far overshadows that. He's wise. He's smart. He has all knowledge. He's God. Right? But what was that first thing we mentioned? What's the little thing? You know, how's the end of Cinderella? We'll move in. Someday my prince will come. Right? Prince. And today, we're not really big on royalty anymore, but... Your heavenly husband is a prince. He is a king. Go to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. This is Jesus being interviewed by Pilate. Pilate entered in the judgment hall and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him with a question, saying, Sayest thou this of thyself, or did others tell it of me? Pilate answered and said, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? And Jesus answers his first question. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence, and I underline that word now. For now, it's not from hence, but he will come, and his kingdom will come with him. Okay, you go back to uh, Luke chapter 19. This is the point that's being illustrated when he gives the parable about the man who goes to a far country and comes back to check on his servants who he gave talents. Right, Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 11, and. Uh, as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. And he said, so this is a parable he's going to do to, to respond to that thought, that they thought the kingdom of God is going to immediately appear. He said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants, delivered unto them his goods to occupy until he come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have thee to reign over us. 
And it came to pass that when he returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given money, that he might know how much every man had gained by his trading. And then he go through the back and forth with that. And the very end, 27, after he's dealt with those, he says, But those mine enemies which not would not have that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. The man in the story who went away is Jesus. He's going, and he's going to heaven, and he's going to abide there until the final judgment. That's when he comes back with his kingdom. And there there will be the reckoning of how profitable were we as servants, and those that would not have him to reign, those are all his enemies, they will be dealt with there in the final judgment. Okay? See that he is a king again over in uh, Acts chapter 2. This is on the day of Pentecost when uh, Peter is getting up to, to teach and to preach. Um, start in verse 32, Acts chapter 2, 32. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses, therefore being on the right hand of God, exalted, raised up on high, that's where he is today, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, the same one, both Lord, Master of all, and Christ. The Christ was a king. Right? That's why the wise men came to Jerusalem, looking, where is he that was born king of the Jews? For he seen him stars. And what did Herod say? He wanted to ask where that Christ should be born. It's synonymous that Christ would be king. God has made him both Lord and king. And he's to sit on his right hand until his enemies were put under his footstool. Right? That goes all the way back to, I think, Psalm 2. All right. Fast forward a little bit to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll just pick up in verse 20, and, and briefly the context is he's dealing with some people within the Corinthian church who didn't believe resurrection was a real thing. And he is really upbraiding them about how dumb that is, because if, it, if resurrection isn't real and Christ hasn't risen, all your faith is in vain. What's the point? Anyway, that's your context. But then he's established, but now Christ, but now is Christ risen. He's affirming the truth. But now is Christ risen from the dead. Verse 20. And become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Man came death, Adam. Man came the resurrection, Jesus. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. That does not translate to everyone will have eternal life in heaven. All are going to have eternal life. But those who are not here, it's going to be a very unpleasant eternal life. But every man in his own order. Christ no mercy for God. Afterwards they are God. At his coming, he shall have been down to the end. When he shall have delivered us, he reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Okay? Well, how do we know when that happens? The last enemy shall be destroyed. That shall be destroyed is death. Okay? You can continue on in this, but I'm going to jump for the sake of time down to verse 50 in this passage. It says, Now this I say, brethren... That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. We have mortal bodies that are corruptible. You don't believe it? Get over 30 and you'll see things start falling apart, right? They're corruptible. 
This is not what will inherit the incorruptible, the perfect, the eternal. Right? Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. There will be some children of God who are still alive on that day when there's going to be a change. It's going to be fast. In the moment of an eye, in, the, in, the, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, new incorruptible bodies, and we shall all be changed. For this incorruptible must put on, this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So that when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall it be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of all this, you get 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain. Not in vain in the Lord. He's coming back. He's reigning. And he must continue to reign until that final judgment, until that last enemy is put down under his feet in death. Right? Your heavenly husband is a king, is a prince, right? First Timothy um, chapter 6, verse 13. Not just any old king. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 13. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, before Christ Jesus, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate. Potentate's a great word. It means ruler, the power, the authority, the only. In his times he'll show it. It's true now, but he'll reveal it. Who's the blessed and only potentate? The king of kings. And the big difference between that, the king of kings, is the article. The king, not a king, not a pretty good king, not a king among many, the king of kings and lord of all lords. All right? He's the top. Right? In the old uh, heathen empires, there would be the top king, and then underneath there would be the kings that he hadn't killed that still are sitting under him. And there could be like 130 of them. Right? And so just because you lost didn't mean that you, you were dead. You could still be a king, but you weren't ruling, right? You serve the highest king. You were bought by the highest king. That's your heavenly husband. The highest king. Does it look like that way in the world around you today? It doesn't look like it. It's because he has not chosen to show it yet. But in his time... He will. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth. Now, this has always bothered me because when I think about princes, I think them as a lower tier beneath the king, right? Kings are supposed to be higher than princes. At least that's in my you know, distorted view of royalty. This word here, prince, means preeminence, the first, the top, 
There's no one higher than him. Okay? If you go over to chapter 5, I'm going to read... I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's good for you. Let's listen. I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed. He has the victory. He has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song. Listen to this song. Thou art worthy. The Lamb is worthy. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Now, why does every little girl want to marry a prince? She wants to be a princess. Daddy's already told her she's been a princess, but she wants to make it official. Your God has made you kings and priests. You're now the royal family. And I beheld, and I heard a voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beast and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Is this a small affair? By no means. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb! That was slain to receive power, all power, riches, all riches, wisdom, all wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. There's no one more worthy than your heavenly husband. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth, and under the sea, and which are in the sea, and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power be unto him that sit upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen, or so be it, or truly. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth 
forever and ever. He's worthy. He's worthy. Go forward to Revelation 11. Revelation 11, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded, blowing trumpet. seventh angel sounded, and there was a great voice in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, that thou should give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and should destroy them which destroy the earth. It's him putting all those kingdoms down in a visible manifestation. He is putting them all under his feet. Go forward again to 19. After these things, I heard a great voice of much people saying, Alleluia! Praise Jehovah. Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia! Praise Jehovah! And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty beasts and the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen. Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the voice of many waters, as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Omnipotent. He's all-powerful, and he's reigning. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. And his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. That's the bride. The marriage has come. She's been given righteousness and is decked in it now. And he said unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture 
dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God Almighty. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. This is that revealing. This is when he comes in that judgment. And he executes the wrath of God. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that cry in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together under the supper of the great God. Blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And here he is calling out to the fowls, Come to the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of the captains and the flesh the kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on his horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he had deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that had worshipped his image. Both were cast into the fire alive, cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth. And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. This is a mighty king. This is one, though the very gates of hell are opened up, and every single last soldier they've got, along with every one in this world who hates God, is standing there to oppose him, and they're going to lose. And there's not a chance, not one in a billion, that they're victorious. This is the mighty king. This is your heavenly husband. But above all these things, just like Brother Abraham talked about, he loves you. In this world, a king sends his servants out to fight and maybe sacrifice their life for his cause, right? If it completes my objective as the leader of this nation and it costs your life, okay. That's how the kings of this world operate. But this king, this king of all kings and lord of all lords who loves you so much, personally came, fought the battle, not really for his own benefit, other than the obedience to his father, but for the benefit of his servants. Of you. He gave his own his life. And he did it in a way that was humiliating. To come into this creation itself is humiliating. And then to be rejected of his own creation, his own people, the specially chosen people of the Jews to hate him and to cast him up with evil hands, to have him crucified, to hang naked on a cross. 
he was willing to go into that as the king and do that for your sake. Why did he do that? I'll go back to Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that it should be holy without blemish. He said that he had gone to prepare a place. One day, your prince will come. And he is way better than any Disney imagination. In every category, he is infinitely better. And he's promised that he's coming. He went to prepare a place and he's coming back and he'll receive you to himself. Do you love this husband? Do you act today like you're looking forward to that prince coming? Or do we act like we dread it? Do we act like we don't care? I'm guilty of not holding Christ high enough in my life. The world talks so cheaply about our Savior, about our Lord, about our Heavenly Husband. He's still mocked the same way He was mocked on the cross. He's mocked today. And we hear that. And we allow, I may be just speaking for myself, we allow His greatness to become incrementally lower in the way that I think about him, react to him, pray. This is my beloved, one who is worthy of my love and affection. This is my friend. Thank you all. Okay.